when I was 19 was uh, the producer I was working for said, is there anything else that you want to be in the world? Because if there is, you should do that because this job is the roughest and, and it's true. And that, and that comes from people at the highest, highest level. If you're a person who's heard the word no from a boss, an ex, a team that cut you, a job market that didn't want you, an accident or diagnosis that left you debilitated and depressed, or felt paralyzed by any setback that you just weren't willing to accept, this is the show for you. Because it'll teach you what my dad always taught me, that failure is just opportunity in disguise. This is Matthew Del Negro, and you're listening to 10,000 No's. Welcome back to 10,000 No's. Things have been really uncertain lately. Uh, So as I record this in anticipation of releasing it on March 20th, I don't even know if I will have dropped another impromptu solo episode before it by the time you're hearing this. This crisis we're in has been making me think about how to use 10,000 no's to in some way add to the message of hope and calm and resilience in what is increasingly becoming a topsy-turvy world. So bear with me as I figure out how to do that or decide that's not where my energy is supposed to be going. But I believe that that line of thinking uh, somewhat dovetails into my guest today, Tyler Mitchell. Tyler, like me, is obsessed with helping people feel more connected to one another, specifically through story and more specifically through new, fresh voices that otherwise would never have a shot at the big leagues. He, alongside Brian Grazer and Ron Howard, uh, is one of the men behind the industry upending Imagine Impact program. It's it's actually quite jaw-dropping how they've begun to successfully democratize access to the entertainment industry. They are literally changing the way studios, producers, directors, and representatives connect to writers. You're going to hear some of the stories from Tyler, where they've found writers from around the world and ushered their material along to the point where it has a legitimate shot at being the next great television series or film. And before Tyler took the helm at Imagine Impact, he was executive vice president of motion pictures at Imagine Entertainment. And before that, he, you know what, you don't need his whole resume. We're going to put links in the show notes if you want uh, to deep dive into Tyler's past. The important thing is the way his mind works and how he has taken these ideas that he's had for a long, long time and actually managed to execute them in a way that I don't even think is close to where it's going to go. And if his success in business doesn't bug you enough, this guy is also a flat out creative force. Not only has he produced, but he's written for television, co-writing two primetime shows for NBC, Kidnapped and My Own Worst Enemy. Uh, He co-wrote the story for The Heart of Rock and Roll, a new musical inspired by the songs of Huey Lewis and the News which is heading to Broadway after a record-breaking run last year in San Diego. You're going to hear about that toward the tail end of the interview. And it's just such an awesome story of where it came from, uh, how personal it is to him, and how uh, they are managing to pull it off, or they've managed to pull it off. Finally, on top of all this, he's a family man. I met him a few years ago when his wife, Brooke, whom he met in kindergarten, uh, was coaching both of our daughters in soccer. And he's one of those people whose energy, drive, and multifaceted talents never cease to amaze me. But here he is, because he's going to explain it all way better than I could, Tyler Mitchell. But I'd love to talk about Imagine Impact and 
kind of it, how it came about, what it is, and some of the amazing results because it's pretty awesome. Yeah, it uh, it came about really from Brian Grazer who called me a little over two years ago with this idea of a content accelerator. And he, Brian is a very famously curious person and has lots of friends in many different disciplines, a lot of them in Silicon Valley. And he was friendly with uh, a person named Paul Graham, who started Y Combinator, which is sort of the most successful startup accelerator in Silicon Valley. And they have been behind things like Airbnb and Dropbox and Instacart and Quora and all of these amazing companies. And Brian called me and said, well, what if we, what if we did what they do for startups for content? And that might seem like an abstract idea, but when you think about it, <clears throat> a startup really is a movie or a show. In fact, like when you create a new movie or show, you incorporate a new company and the script is really your business plan. And then you have to rally different creative people. You know, you have to get a director, actors, you know, line producer budget. You have to put a, a package together. You have to get financing and then you have to create a product and take it to market. And so in terms of what a startup, an entrepreneur does and what a a producer and a writer do are, are really, really similar. And so that idea resonated with me and, but I knew it was going to be really, really challenging. And so it took about five months of, of planning and working with, with Ron and Brian and, you know, not being sure that it was going to be something that was really going to work out to come up with, um, this strategy of how we were going to take, um, writers from all across the world, democratize access so that everyone could apply. Um, as, as you probably know, if you're, if you're a writer, you know, even in LA, let alone anywhere in the world, most people can't even read your script because of, um, legal issues. You know, you can't read unsolicited material. So there's this, this catch 22 where everyone wants diverse, fresh voices, yet you can't, like submit diverse, fresh voices. And other than some fellowships and Sundance and, and a few things out there, there aren't a lot of, uh, of programs out there, um, that really, in our opinion, teach people, you know, what they need to do to create a viable movie or television show. So we created this, this system where we can process, um, over 2,000 projects per week, 2,000 submissions per week. Uh, we've had 11,000 people from 81 countries apply. Um, and we've developed 61 projects in the last year. In our first two iterations, Impact 1 and 2, we set up um, 22 out of the 44 projects. Half of them didn't even have an agent or a manager completely unrepresented. Everybody has been signed by a major agency or management company. And it's been really fulfilling to see people's lives change and to introduce these amazing new voices, you know, at scale. I mean, 61 writers from, I think, nine countries um, of, you know, we're the most diverse program out there, um, but we're also a meritocracy. And it's just been, it's been really fulfilling to be a part of that journey. 
Yeah, it's been pretty cool. And so the listeners know uh, they said no to my script. <laughs> we did say <laughs> Even that. though I knew one of the guys. Uh, that's it, Which is actually great. It actually says great things about you that it's not like you can know somebody. It's like, yeah, how good is your script? Fortunately, fortunately, the, the final decision isn't on us. I mean, the way that, that we work is we narrow it down to about our top 50 and then we have this, this group of shapers. So if you get into the program, it's eight weeks long. You, um, you get a stipend, you know, some, some money to live on free office space. You get partnered with a world-class mentor, often an Oscar, Oscar Emmy award winner, people like Lance Black and Stacey Traub and Ben Watkins, Doug Ellen, creative entourage amongst many, many others, Saladin Patterson, last OG. Um, and you work with them, Minimum four hours a week, one-on-one. We bring in uh, speakers, people like J.J. Abrams and Ryan Murphy and Donna Langley, Issa Rae, to inspire people um, twice a week. pay them, what, 40, did you already say that? I don't know if you said that, but was it $40,000 for- Up to to $40,000 for for, for a stipend so that, I mean, we want to give writers everything and creators everything they need to succeed, which we think is mentorship, um, space to work- a community um, and money to cover the bills, so they can really focus their energy on on their projects. and And it's eight weeks, and we have people go from a log line to a finished product, um, you know, first draft in eight weeks. And I mean, our our first awesome success story that we couldn't have scripted better ourselves was a guy named Godwin Jabangwe, who's originally from Zimbabwe. You know, came to the U.S. Um, with Literally, I think, you know, like $35 and a copy of To Kill a Mockingbird and a suitcase. Um, the airlines lost his suitcase, so he arrived almost with nothing. And and Godwin, in eight weeks, ended up writing this beautiful animated musical called Tunga that he sold to Netflix in a four-way bidding war for mid-six figures, guaranteed. Wow. And has gone on to get hired for other things, has an office at Netflix, and um, is the greatest, most beautiful spirit in the world. And, and to be a part of that and to see that happen in two months time was, was pretty phenomenal. Yeah. That's really, really cool. And, and I want to get into your story as well, but I would love for you to just share a story. Uh, I think you told me out of my driveway at some point, um, about the app and how you've created this app that, takes the program, I think, to a whole other level. And and I want to say it was somebody from Game of Thrones maybe read somebody's – what's that story? Because it's a great story, for, particularly for my listeners to hear of what's possible. Do you know Yeah, I mean, so our, our mobile web app, I think, is going to be the thing that really – revolutionizes and innovates the business in in a a really impactful way um hence the name impact um but you know hollywood is it's it's such an interesting place right because it it on the one hand is very cutting edge in technology in terms of special effects and now digital digital distribution and all these different avenues and yet on the development side of the business it is really opaque. It's not democratized. People don't connect with one another. And so we, 
we created this new app and we see this as being sort of the the LinkedIn meets Upwork, if people are familiar with Upwork, um, for the entertainment industry, which is this huge community of people. I mean, the entertainment industry just in the United States, film and TV um, uh, production employs 2.6 million people. It's a $177 billion a year industry. And yet there's no app for us. There's, there, are, there are no ways for, 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 for artists to communicate, for, for, for me to read, you know, see, see a writer and be able to download their sample without going through like intermediaries. And so there's, there's been a lot of different barriers and, you know, what we're doing, you know, with the app has been, um, pretty amazing. You, you spoke about Brian Cogman who, who won three Emmys for Game of Thrones, uh, old friend of mine, amazing writer. And he was looking to staff a writer on his new show over at Amazon. He's a deal there called Lazarus. And he had been looking for quite a long time. He went onto our app and saw a project called Bounty um, by a female writer named Millabel Hart, who's amazing. And on the app, he every every project has a graphic associated with it. So he tapped on the graphic. He clicked watch pitch. You can watch pitch videos. He got to see her in person pitching her project. He then hit request script. It was instantly watermarked and emailed to him. Um, he read her sample and then emailed me and said, I watched, I watched Mila's pitch. I read her script. She seems amazing. Do you think she would be interested in staffing on my show? And I said, probably. Um, and he said, well, would you mind connecting me with her? And I said, well, you can connect with her through the app. And so he did. And long story short, he, he hired her onto the show and said, you know, sent me an email saying this app is a game changer and, and I never want to stop working with Mila. She's so talented. Mila went on to sell a project, her first next project, um, to imagine with, um, her, as we call shapers, her mentors attached, um, to executive produce. And, and so that kind of, you know, um, summed up without us even trying what we're trying to achieve, which is getting, you know, movies and shows, as, as you know, is it's almost like falling in love. It's almost like a dating app. It takes, you know, four different parties. You have to have a writer, like a piece of material. You have to have a director, a producer, an actor, and a financier. And, and you usually need, you know, two, if not more of those pieces to align. And so we're hoping that our platform will be able to align those pieces faster for people and be able to, you know, uh, there, there's so much inefficiency in our business, just bring more efficiency in our business in a time where content production is exploding and there's more opportunities than, than, than ever for people. And yet not everybody's finding the right opportunity at the right time. Yeah. I would imagine that some of the challenges would be, it, it makes me think of the book Moneyball, uh, the Michael Lewis book or, or the film, I guess, as well. But just that kind of the old guard not being happy that some of the, you know, the gatekeepers that, that you know, all of a sudden you can link up a writer, you, you know, they, they're kind of removed in this situation. I would imagine that would be some of the challenge. And, but, but to me, it sounds like as a, as an audience member, it's like, yeah, you can a lot, it's a lot quicker path to get to 
the talent or the stories that need to be told. I mean, there have definitely been headwinds. And when when I first went on kind of our, uh, the road show to, to all the agencies and places to sort of explain kind of what impact is and what we were doing. And I mean, there was definitely hesitancy, but, uh, but honestly, again, we've introduced now about 30 writers who have been signed by management companies and agents and, and people still want representation and we're not trying to, to replace anybody, you know, in, in that kind of a way. Um, I think that like PayPal gave more business to MasterCard and Visa, even though they were hesitant, um, and, and cautious about PayPal initially, we, we really do see this as, as a win-win. I mean, the, the more it's so hard to get things made, you know, even today when the demand is so high that if we can find more talented people, if we can put pieces together faster, you know, people who want to work on the same things together and row that boat in the same direction, you know, hopefully that will lead to the deal makers being able to make deals faster. And, and that's what, that's what everybody, everybody wants the same thing in this industry, which is to get things made and those things to be good and those things to be successful. But aligning the pieces can be challenging, time consuming and really inefficient. Yeah. Yeah. So let me take you back because there was, I think the first time I met you a couple of years ago, uh, this may seem like a non sequitur, but I, I think I'm going somewhere with it. We had a conversation. Our daughters were on the same soccer team together, and we just happened to be standing next to each other. My daughter was playing goalie. You said you were a goalie. And I, I think it was our first conversation was about how you decided early on you liked being a goalie. And I don't know if it was your dad that encouraged you or you just had this idea, but it was the thought that, well, if I play goalie, most people don't want to play goalie. If I really commit myself to it, I could actually, you know, have a leg up on a lot of people. And it, it, that has always stuck in my mind, particularly in light of what you're doing now, because it's, it's kind of a, a mind that is strategic and sees a gap in the market, which is what you're doing now. I don't know if that's a far stretch or is there, is there something in you that's, it's kind of been in your thinking from a young age that, that has looked to, you know, looked to gaps, whether it's in the marketplace or on a sports field, is that something that maybe you were taught by parents or innately had what, where do you think that came from? Well, a um, couple things to unpack there. The goalie, the, the goalie part being one, and then um, gaps in the marketplace being the other. I, I would say that I'm. I've always been a long term thinker. I definitely think things way far into the future. Um, I mean, you know, my wife Brooke, who I've known since preschool. Uh, I knew pretty early on that I wanted to uh, marry her, um, and so. You know, looking into the future is definitely something that I I, I spend a lot of time doing. And the goalie part of it, yes, uh, what happened was we were, we had a a good soccer team when I was in middle school and, but we didn't have a a, a good goalie um, because very few kids want to play goalie. And uh, I played halfback and I was good halfback and we, but we had a, we had a really strong team and offense wasn't the problem. My dad was the coach. And so he said, 
you're going to play goalie because, <laughs> because, you know, honestly making someone else's kid play, play goalie, um, you know, isn't necessarily a good look when you're the coach. So he said, you're going to play goalie. And I was also a pitcher and pitching and goalie are actually the same job, um, in the sense that if somebody can't score on you, then you can't lose. And I loved pitching and obviously pitching, you're really involved in the game. Uh, goalie, you can be less involved in the game, but both are critical positions, right? Like if, if someone can't score on you, they can't win. And I remember I played the first game of goalie and we won and I made, you know, no one scored on me. I made, I made several saves and it was true. My, my, it was my, it was my father who said to me, you know, there are a lot of, a lot of good kids, um, out there, you know, more talented than you, um, naturally at soccer faster, you know, you know, all, all that, um, more skilled. He said, but you know, there aren't that many kids that excel at goalie. And I, Happened. I was getting recruited to play at a uh, in high school at a really good um, high school soccer program, and so he said, "I think you should concentrate on on being a goalie." And so I did. I played another season at goalie. I went to goalie camp and fell in fell in love with that position. Um, and and I I guess that for me, I really enjoy the pressure, you know, where there were, there could be games where you're not involved at all, but then one breakaway, you know, can, can change an entire game. Or then you go to penalty kicks. And for, for, for whatever reason, I always relished being the person when something's on the line. Um, and, and whether it was pitching or, or playing goalie, there, there are very few positions in sports that, that, that make you feel that way. Yeah. And you have siblings. I don't remember. I, yeah. I have a, an older sister who's um, three and a half years older. And then I have a, a stepsister who is uh, the same age. Okay. Okay. And sports were a big thing for the whole family or just you? I mean, we, yeah, sports, sports were definitely a big thing. I would say for the family, I think that I loved, I probably love sports the most, um, of my, like my stepsister was super, super fast. Um, we all ski, um, that, that, that's a big, uh, a thing for us. But I think in terms of like, I, my parents had to drag me off the field, you know, like when it was dark outside that I, I was the person who they had to holler in the neighborhood to come back from playing stickball. And, uh, uh, I always loved, you know, athletics. Yeah. And you have that in you today. That drive is one of the things I jotted down here before sitting down with you was just, and we can get into it later. There's a specific thing I want to ask you about with, you have an insane drive and, that was in you back then as a kid, like as far back as you remember, or, or was there any point, you know, before we started rolling, you told me something about your friend in terms of like why you got into this particular business and we can talk about that or not. But even before that, was there, was that drive in you from, you know, preschool or, or did anything happen that kind of, well, I would say that my family was definitely achievement driven and uh, my, my folks got divorced when, when I was young, I was about five years old, but 
my father, you know, for better or for worse, and love my father, he's my my best friend. He you know passed away when I was was twenty seven, but he was tough, you know, and definitely, you know, getting good grades, winning, um, you know, gave you a lot of 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 credit, um, and he and but it, it came from a place of love and like wanting to push to have his kids be the best. My sister, you know, was, you know, incredibly bright, you know, over straight A student, you know, from middle school through Stanford, Fulbright scholar, you know, the, the, the whole nine. Um, my stepsister, you know, very talented, incredible sprinter. And so there, there were always things, you know, um, that, that gave you, um, you know, props for, for getting the A on the test or winning the game. Um, I will say that that isn't the best way to live, um, you know, being older because, you know, achievements as you, as you knock them down, they're very fleeting and learning to love the process in, in my, you know, later years in my, in my thirties and now early forties has been really important because, it's tough because parents who drive their kids and push their kids to be great at something or really, you know, and um, it, it does work. If you've read Andre Agassi's book, Open, you know, he- I have not. Uh, it's a great book. He famously hated tennis. Um, his dad, you know, beat him into being the best tennis player in the world or amongst them. And, and that can work. Um, but I think that- um, And maybe that's where that drive came from that, you know, from whether it was from fear or from just wanting to prove myself over and over again, um, that on the one hand, that's been a positive because I do always want to keep pushing myself, improving myself. But on the other hand, I think that you, you have to fall in love with the process and and take take a long term view and just keep working hard and be. And this is very cliche and so many people say, it, but less results and oriented, you know, less outcome oriented. Um, I mean, I think you know it's it's even part of Zen Buddhism where you know just let go of the outcome and enjoy the process and and that that really is true. It's you know work extremely hard at what you're doing, but don't be focused on the byproduct. You know of whether it's the you know the achievement, the success, the fame, the money, anything just focus on doing your job as well as you can do it, working as hard as you possibly can. And if things like that come from it, those are bonuses and that's great, but that's not what you should be setting out to do. Yeah. Did you have any points where you hit the pinnacle of achievement or maybe not the pinnacle, but you hit high achievements and felt empty and had a moment of clarity where you said, oh, this is not what it's cracked up to be and changed your ways or changed what motivated you? Or was it just more of a gradual change as you got into your 30s and 40s? Well, it's hard to change your ways. Um, It's a process. But I will say that um, I never, I would never tell anybody that I was a producer until I was actually a, a producer, like a full capital P 
producer um, because there's a lot of people um, who say they're producers when they're they're not. And so I, you know, people would say, what are you? And I would say, I'm a wannabe. And they would say, wannabe. And I say, yeah, I want to be a producer, but I'm not a producer yet. And um, when I produced my first movie, uh, Lucky Number 11, which was um, the first script that um, Jason Smilovic ever wrote, and I ended up um, putting together you know, all of the financing for that, uh, as well. It was a big independent movie with, um, with a really strong cast. I mean, people like Josh Hartnett and Bruce Willis and Lucy Liu and Ben Kingsley and Morgan Freeman and Stanley Tucci. And, you know, when you're 27 years old and you're acting as both the producer and financier, and obviously I had, you know, several, um, producing partners in it, um, you know, as well, it's, it's a different level of responsibility. And, and my father had passed away, um, right before that movie went into pre-production, um, probably about six weeks before. And I remember, um, there was a lot of different things that happened in pre-production and we thought the movie was going to fall apart and then it was finally going. And it was my birthday party and it was the day that Bruce Willis flew in and we, we had this, we had this, you know, really, had this really amazing night, um, around that, but not long after I remember feeling like, okay, I've, I've done this and nothing is changed. I don't feel different. And, and the truth is, is that it doesn't get any easier. Um, I thought, you know, I thought that after I had done, you know, done something like this, that doors would open easier, that my job would get, get, um, would get easier. And what I've learned is that it never gets any easier for anybody, including the people at the very top. And in fact, it gets harder. Um, and you really have to love it. I mean, one of the best pieces of advice I got when I was an intern, when I was 19 was, uh, the producer I was working for said, is there anything else that you want to be in the world? Because if there is, you should do that because this job is the roughest and, and it's true. And that, and that comes from people at the highest, highest level. Um, you have to work harder and smarter, you know, every day, even, even if you are a, a huge name proven person in this business, it, it, it is, it is a business where you have the opportunity to prove yourself over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good way of looking at it. See how you did that, guys? He flipped it around. Um, so tell me about the paper that you wrote at Duke. I don't know if you remember telling me this. I don't remember the specifics, but I remember my my hazy recollection is that there could be some seeds in that paper that are playing out now in Imagine Impact. Maybe I'm wrong, but that was kind of the... Recollection. You had some kind of big thinking about, I think, this business, right? Yeah, um, I did. In so in 1999, I, I one of the things that I love uh, loved about uh, movies and TV, and still do to this day, is 
the home theater experience experience. So I was the kid, you know, in my college dorm room who had completely gypsy rigged, you know, six speaker surround sound on a 27 inch, uh, you know, TV with my roommate's laser disc player, not a DVD, a laser disc <laughs> player that you had to flip. And we would tune that thing and make it sound awesome and get the room to shake, um, you know, and, and watch movies like heat and the gun battles, you know, in at full volume. And so I was just, I was always obsessed with, with that. And so my senior year in college, I, I did an independent study on digital distribution and I wrote a paper called the digital distribution era 1.0. And you have to remember that Blockbuster was still dominant. VHS was still dominant. Uh, DVDs had just been introduced, I think, in 1998, um, <clears throat> at least widely. And people were just starting to get into DVDs. There was this whole secondary, you know, um, infusion of capital from to the studios from home video. And... I wrote this paper that was all about how ever all those things were going to change, and I I saw the first ever DVR. I saw the first ever Texas Instruments um, digital projector. I saw, you know, kind of all, all of. I saw the first HD TV, and you know, and they were so concerned that it was so high def that you know, that that television wasn't going to look good because they were going to have to basically do movie makeup. When you say you saw those things, you saw the physically I went and visited went them. And vis- okay. I went I went okay. on on in 1999. Know, in 1999, I went on okay. field trips my myself doing research to okay. see these things in person. And I just kind of saw how this game was going to change and and I wish I could say that I was, you know, super smart and I capitalized on it and um I I knew Netflix was going to be massive and I did know it was Netflix was going to be massive but the the thing was at at 21 22 years old is you think that everyone else that's older and smarter than you knows that too. I mean, the music industry had just gone through it. And so you would think that all of the studios and and people would see that this was happening. But, you know, as you get older and you learn about quarterly profits and things that public companies and media companies have to go through, you know, this is before the dot, this is the four dot com one boom, right? Um, that they don't innovate, they don't change, they they don't in, like invest. You know the way that the the Titanic companies, you know that that really took off, have like Amazon, like Netflix, you know like like Apple, like putting money back into the company, not worrying about it, and you know growing and and creating a product in kind of a more of a winner take all environment. And so, you know, again, I I, I was ignorant, and I thought that that these things were fairly obvious. Um, but what I did realize coming out of that paper, um, and was that producers, people who, people who knew how to develop material and understood finance. And I was an economics major and could be close to talent could actually be incredibly valuable because, the barriers to distribution were going to become less and less. And so it would be the people who could make the best product for the most value um, or, or for the, the lowest price point. Hopefully everybody has upside into it that we're, we're going to be valuable in the future. And it was, um, 
it was a, it was a long game plan. So I, I ended up the first person I ever met in the entertainment industry because I didn't know anybody was Barry Levinson, uh, the director who he moved to our small hometown where, where I grew up. And um, I cornered him at a Christmas party and said, I want to be a producer. What do I do? And he said, if you want a producer, you should learn every job in the business and work on set for a director. And he told me that when I was 19 and I really took that to heart. And so I've worked at an agency, production company, studio, on set for a director, you know, film finance. And I, and I learned kind of all of those roles and, and that holistic view, um, you know, in, in the long term was, was really, really beneficial. And that was when you were 19. So what year were you at Duke when you wrote that paper? Your, uh, that was, so that was my senior year. That was, when was I your was, senior year. Yeah. And that was when I was 22. Um, but I had decided that I wanted to be a producer when I was 19. And when did you have the thought that you would even be in the entertainment field at all? Uh, what, what, what was the driving force behind that? The driving force, you know, as you mentioned earlier, my, my best friend died of cancer when I was 12 years old. Um, he was diagnosed with terminal brain cancer, um, at 11. Um, he, he actually lasted longer than anybody else uh, did at that time, you know, fighting it off. But I was um, with him pretty much every day. He was not only my best friend, he was my neighbor. Um, so I spent tons of time with him. And that obviously has a, a, a huge effect on on your entire life. And so, you know, carpe diem and sort of living each day for, you know, for my friend um, really – um, what was something that I, that I took seriously. And so when I was, when I was 18, I finished my freshman year, you know, of high school or sorry, of college. And, uh, a friend of mine and I did a road trip, uh, cross country for a month, which is amazing. And one of the first stops was actually in LA. And I was, I was visiting a friend of mine who, who was down here interning for a company called Alphaville, uh, which was Jim Jackson, Sean Daniels production company. And I crashed with him and he said, oh, hey, you should come by, you know, the lot. And I didn't even know what that meant. But I was, I was a massive, massive movie and TV fan growing up. In fact, um, I have, you know, what my family would call an audiographic memory where I can hear something and remember it pretty instantly. And my sister used to say that I wasn't even a real person. I was just an amalgamation of movie quotes because <laughs> I would just constantly quote movies. But I never considered it a a job, you know, other than, other than, you know, actors, I didn't, I had no idea what even happened, um, you know, but behind, behind the set, how things are even made. I'd ne never even seen a script before. And so when I drove on to the universal lot and like went into a bungalow and saw a production company and saw my friend who was getting paid to, you know, eat red vines and, you know, and drink free soda and read screenplays and then write coverage, right. Which is, you know, your, your, your book report and opinion on, uh, on a script and then drove us around in a golf cart on the <laughs> universal lot. I, I thought, Sounds pretty cool. I thought I can't, I can't even be the lead. This is really happening. And how do you have this job? This is the, you know, the most amazing thing I've, I've seen in my life. And, um, and so when I got back to school that year, now my friend, um, 
told me about this thing called IMDB and you had to go to the computer lab, you know, to get on the internet. And he said, if you go on this thing, IMDB, you can look up people's credits and and your movies and see, you know, um, all the people who worked on it, which was revelatory at the time. And, um, I mean, this was 96. And so, I went on and I started looking up all my favorite movies and the thing that they had in common is that they were all produced predominantly by the same three people, Jerry Bruckheimer, Scott Rudin, and Brian Grazer. And of the three of those guys, I thought Brian Grazer is the best. I mean, he gets to do comedy. He does, you know, smart, you know, um, you know, beautiful Academy Award winning movies. He does, you know, action movies. He does television. I said, I don't, I don't know what being a producer is. And also compared to directors and other people, the number of credits that he, he had was enormous. And I said, I don't know what a producer does, but I think that's something that I could convince my parents is a real job. I couldn't at all, not even close. Um, <laughs> But I just, at that point I said, I'm, I'm going to, I want to be a producer. And I just set my mind to that. And ironically, I, I was actually thinking about today. I made that decision when I was 19 and I started working for Brian when I was 38 and I had never met him before, but he was always, you know, the, the person I looked up to. And so literally it took another lifetime to work, to, to get to a place where, um, I had, you know, had, had amassed enough, you know, skills to be, you know, a value to, to some, someone like Imagine Entertainment. But it's pretty amazing. I mean, he is at the pinnacle of our business and the fact that he was the guy that you saw at 19 and then you've come to work with him and now are partnered with him is pretty, pretty impressive. And just, it's, it's like, you know, being a young kid looking at Jordan and saying, I want to play basketball with him and then being, you know, on a championship team with him. <laughs> I mean, it's, it really is to that level. It's, it's, it's really pretty it's cool. surreal. Yeah, it, yeah. it honestly is. Um, Do you still, I mean, it, it, the relationship is obviously changed because now you're working with him, you know him, but is there still in the back, do you still have that, uh, appreciation for his, his talent and his mind and more and so, more, more so, so. Yeah. both he and Ron, you know, um, from the outside looking in uh, again, you know, I thought, well, once I start working with Ron and Brian, things are going to be easy. You know, things are going to happen. Um, totally not true. And, and what I, it took, it took a couple years to, to realize it, but Ron and Brian, they're like Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal who wake up every morning and they want to hit the tennis ball. You know, they love what they do so much. They're so good at it. They're so talented at it. And they work really, really hard at it. Um, and, and that's when it kind of hit me that that's why they're so successful, you know, is because they are just passionate about what they do and they're they're not really looking towards outcomes and in fact if if you listen to you know to to their many talks about things like whether it was Apollo 13 or Splash or a lot of their biggest hits empire no one thought was going to be successful but they did and they believed in it and they weren't they weren't doing things necessarily to try to achieve success. They were doing things that they, that they just believed in and loved. And, and that, 
and, and again, I think it was focusing on that and making like for 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 example, Apollo thirteen. They thought, well, why would any? Why is anyone going to want to see a movie when everyone knows how it ends? Yeah, you know, how are we going to make it compelling? And they worked, you know, really hard to make it this really amazing cinematic experience. And Ron did a lot of research and interviews with people you know, in mission control. And so, you know, really turned into a rescue movie, you know, and, and the mission control was almost like an operating room, right. Where everyone's involved in trying to save someone's life and, and, and their curiosity and constantly pushing the envelope. I mean, again, to, to taking a risk at starting something like impact after everything that they've achieved to just keep pushing into new territory, to starting a documentary division, to, you know, building an animation division that I was involved with, you know, before impact to, um, you know, all of the different things that they're, they're doing is just because they have this genuine passion and, and love for it. And it's inspiring to, to be around. Um, and, and it just elevates, I think everyone's game, um, you know, who works for them. Yeah. Yeah. So a question for you that I always forget, um, you wrote as well. I mean, you, I think of you as a producer. I think of you, you know, when you were younger, you were financing films, but you actually wrote uh, Kidnapped and My Own Worst Enemy. Were you a staff writer on those shows? And how did that, one, how did that come about? Uh, two, what was the experience like being a writer? Because I don't think you did it before or or since those two shows. And then how has that uh, affected your dealing with the writers at Imagine Impact? I would imagine your relationship to writers is different as a result. Well, yeah, um, two things. First is it goes back to Brian Grazer because he has a story by credit on Splash. And when I was starting out, um, you know, I remember him him saying in an interview, and I think it's in his book, that Lou Wasserman, you know, gave him a pad of pen uh, or a pad of paper and a pen, and said, you, you know, uh, this is not this is empty. Write something down and make it valuable. And so, actually, the first thing that I wrote that got made was the incredible Burt Wonderstone, for which I wrote the story. Like I came up with that idea, I I wrote an outline. I found a writer in the, by the name of Chad Culchin, who had written this this hilarious script called Sacking about competitive hacky sacking that I love that didn't sell. And I said, I have this idea for a movie. Here's, you know, my, you know, two or three page outline. And then we worked on it together for over a year. He wrote 13 drafts and, you know, we ended up selling it and getting it, getting it made. And, you know, I got a story by credit on that movie. And then, um, Jason Smilovic, after Lucky Number Eleven, um, I pitched him a an idea that I had for a movie um, that took place in Las Vegas called The Whale Hunter, and he loved it. Begged me to write it. You know, he'd written one screenplay before. This is a whole different kind of a movie, but he convinced me to do it, so he wrote that, and we worked, you know, very very closely together. And I've always been a the kind of producer that not is, you know, not, not a fit for every writer, but is very, very hands-on involved in, in story and story breaking. And, 
and and working through things and and we he wrote an amazing draft of that script and then Jason kind of went on a, on a tear and the first four shows that he sold you know pitches all went to series and so when we were making lucky number 11 kidnapped was going to series and he um asked me to come work on the show and I was ready to part ways with the production company I was at that time and I mean, long story short, I was kind of a consulting producer and helping to break story. And we ended up um, getting kind of stuck on, I think it was episode 10. And it, the, the writer's room, you know, we had a really talented writer's room at the time, but we, we just couldn't crack this episode. And I had an idea for something. Um, and, but because I was Jason's partner, because I wasn't a, a screenwriter, um, you know, rightly so, I didn't get, you know, I didn't have a, a very big voice in, in the room at the time. I had no experience in TV. And so I came in over the weekend, um, one weekend, and I whiteboarded an entire episode. And the um, the showrunner uh, at the time, uh, the co-showrunner with Jason, uh, David Greenwald, who was X-Files and went on to do Grimm and it's really amazing talented guy I really respect a lot. It was kind of that goodwill hunting moment where he walked in on a Monday morning and said, you know, who did this? And, um, <laughs> I raised my hand and, um, he said, I think this is really good. And I said, thank you. And, uh, he said, there's just one problem. It shoots in five days and you have to write it. So I wrote my first teleplay in five days. Holy it shot. Crap. Um, I'm proud of that episode. Um, Jason definitely came in and put his, you know, polish on it and wrote a lot of brilliant dialogue. But um, it, yeah, I had to write 10 pages a day. And I just said, I'm going to write 10 pages a day, get this thing done and put my mind to it. And, you know, I had, I had written before, I'd never completed something before, um, but I, but I had a really good time doing it. And then when Jay sold his, his next show and we had started a new company by then, uh, my worst enemy, um, I was a writer on that show. A staff writer. And you were, I was or, a co or, I was a co-producer on that show. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so I was, you know, in, involved with, you know, breaking story and I wrote two episodes and we had, I'll, I'll say that, you know, Jason had a, just a phenomenal, um, uh, sense of picking writers. I mean, Sam Catlin was a story editor on Kidnapped who went on to be, you know, the number two on Breaking Bad. Brian Cogman was our writer's assistant on My Own Worst Enemy who went on to do all seven seasons of Game of Thrones and win three Emmys. Lauren LaFranc um, and Rafe Judkins who went on to do, you know, things like um, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and Chuck. And I mean, we just had this re uh, really amazing writer writer's room, um, Courtney Camp Agbo, who created power. And so, um, there, there was just a, a really incredible group of, of people and minds and just to be around the, those creative people and being in a writer's room and having that experience definitely gave me, um, a ton of experience and confidence in working with writers for, for impact. And, and, and also something that we, I really would love to talk about is the musical, um, uh, the, the, the heart of rock and roll, it's based on the lyrics of, uh, Huey Lewis. It's 
going is it it's going to broadway uh next year or it's hoping to go to broadway what's the let, let's give us this whole thing because yeah. this is an awesome story and how you pulled it off with everything else you had going on um i would i would love to hear this, some of that experience well, I can't say anything official officially, but yes, um, the heart of rock and roll um, looks like it will be going to Broadway next season, which would be the twenty twenty one season. Okay. Um, and it's I've been working on this show for eleven years, and and it actually it it, it came right after my own worst enemy, um, when you know. Things were things were great at the time. I had just finished this movie. I was writing on this show um, for you know for NBC, and and things were kind of better than they had ever been. And then all of a sudden, you know, the financial collapse happened. The show got canceled, um, and I was having a baby. I had just you know moved into a new house, and and things were were, were looking pretty grim. <laughs> uh, honestly, uh, the writer's strike had caused people to stockpile scripts and projects and, and the industry was in turmoil. And, and so it was, um, it was definitely a, a really tough time, you know? And so for me, you know, I was like, okay, well, what can I work on? And at the time, honestly, like television and film, and production company, everyone was downsizing and, and things were, were not looking good, just like, you know, the, the rest of the world. And I had, I had met Huey Lewis, um, through my, my father-in-law, uh, who's a friend of his and who happens to be a huge fan of musicals. And about a year prior to that, he said, he said, Tyler, he like cornered me at a dinner party and Huey Lewis was there and I didn't, I, you know, didn't even know him. And he said, don't you think, you know, Huey Lewis's music would make a great musical? And I said, I grew up with Huey Lewis and I, you know, his music and I bagged his groceries when I was a kid. And he was like one of the few celebrities who lived in, you know, our, our town. And, uh, and so I was very, very familiar with his work. And I said, yeah, probably. And this is when Mama Mia had just come out. It was prior, you know, and I think Jersey Boys had come out too. And he said, well, talk to him about, you know, talk to him about the, talk to him about doing a musical. And I said, you know, Ken, um, theater is a different beast completely. I have, was in musicals in high school, um, but I don't know anything about you know, producing a musical. And he said, well, just talk to him about it. And so we had a conversation and, and he, and I, I just asked him, I said, has anyone ever approached you about making a musical out of your, uh, out of your music? And he said, yeah, you know, people have, and he had actually been in Chicago. He was, I think he had done 220, um, uh, performances in Chicago or more perhaps. And, and he said, you know, no one's ever gotten the book right. And it's all about the book. It's all about the story. It's all about the script. And, um, no one's ever come to me with something that was good. And so a, a year later, when all of my projects had, were basically, you know, dead or stalled, um, I was out hiking one day. I had happened to be listening to one of his songs and I realized that his songs are all stories that have beginning, middle, and end. And 
So I printed out the lyrics to his music and, and read them. And I realized that they were about um, three things predominantly. They were about rock and roll. They were about blue collar workers and working. And they were about love. And there was a lyric in, in one of his songs um, called I Finally Found a Home that really hit me where he said, um, it used to make me so fed up. People always asking me, uh, who will you be when you grow up? You're going to need security. And at a time at which, you know, my father told me I was throwing my life away when I went into the movie business and was walking away from my economics degree and speaking Japanese and kind of an international investment banker track, that really hit home. And I thought that I made this kind of titanic mistake. And I was, you know, kind of too old at this point to go back to business school or have a second act. And what was I going to do? And so I, I read all the lyrics and I ended up crafting a story about a guy who wanted to be a musician and was close, but didn't make it, you know, on the cusp of being like, it's so close. I mean, you know, it's so close between, you know, making it and not. And I had been up for a job running a major movie stars company who had a big deal and one of the biggest people in the world. And I thought I was going to get that job and I didn't get that job. Um, and and so I kind of harnessed that and and made and, and sort of created the story with um, John Abrams, who who wrote the who wrote the book for it, who had also had no experience writing for theater or writing musicals, and you know we had worked together on some on some movies and TV shows, and he asked what I was up to, and I told him, and he was a huge Huey Lewis, and he begged, he begged me to, to do it. And I said, John, you don't, you've never written a musical. I've never produced a musical. This is probably the worst idea Sounds perfect. <laughs> ever. Yeah, this is, I needs someone with experience. Um, but his, his passion really won me over. And uh, yeah, we wrote this story about this kid, you know, this kid who's, you know, about to make it, doesn't, sells out, gets a, you know, a kind of a, a straight corporate job. And then- you know, as he's about to sort of get a promotion and get the life that he wants. And, you know, he, he's making a play for this, this girl, you know, who, this woman who he, he works for actually, um, um, you know, who, who he's sort of secretly in love with gets an opportunity to, to, for one more shot at, at stardom, you know, and, and be an opening, act for, for a big world tour and they kind of finally getting the, the recognition they deserve. And so it's a, you know, it's a, it's a what if and what to do, um, situation. And, and yeah, and I've been working on that for 11 years. You know, again, people told me probably rightly so that I had no business, you know, um, you know, go, going into theater, that they're not the same thing, that they're completely different. And, and I have so much respect for theater um, that we made sure that our our story was as good as possible and our script was as good as possible. And we pitched it to Huey and he he loved it. We actually had three – we had two backups in case he didn't like the, the first one. Um, I think one even took place in space. Um, 
but he 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 got into it. We wrote, you know, we we worked the script until it was really really good before we showed it to anybody in the Broadway world. And then, you know, the first director that we showed it to, Gordon Greenberg, wanted to do it. And then, you know, I think being a good good producer is just assembling the best team possible. And we assembled this amazing a team a team of people, and we ended up uh, getting our our first run at the Old Globe in San Diego, which is one of the most prestigious theater regional theater houses and we were amongst if not the you know most successful musical that they have had there um it was a a, a great experience a huge learning experience and and you know for for people listening i think that just because you haven't done something doesn't mean you can't do it you know, as long as you're respectful, you learn, you know, sometimes having a beginner's mind and not have all the trappings of, you know, well, you have to do it this way or you have to do it that way. Um, I definitely came to it with a totally different approach. Um, and, but I think that the combination of the different skill sets that our team brought, um, elevated it, you know, both myself, Huey, John, the director, our choreographer, Lauren, Brian Yusufer, um, you know, the, the whole team, David Richards, our, our manager, like we, we elevated it to a place that, um, if it was maybe just people who had been in that world, um, wouldn't have taken it. And, and so now I, I've partnered with a, a, a Tony award winning, um, producer, um, and we're, you know, we're, we plan to go all the way with this thing. So, so great because I saw you in the middle of that run the old globe and you looked like you had circles under your eyes and you were like, I think you were kind of like, you had a lot going on. I mean, you had a lot going on and it's just, it's, it's incredible that you even got it done. And then to, to have it, you know, that's knock wood that it's going to be, you know, on that kind of a stage. It's just, it's awesome. So congrats. Yeah. I think that, you know, things, you know, people say when it rains, it pours and, and, you know, I, I have definitely felt throughout my life and I, and I do think that you are faced with the same challenges over and over again until you get through that challenge in a, in a, in a better way. And, you know, my, 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 my dad had just passed away when I made lucky numbers 11. Um, you know, my, my wife was diagnosed with cancer, um, at the time the impact was happening or in hard rock and roll was happening. And, and I think that you have to just learn to deal with adversity, um, and, and just keep moving forward every day. And, and, you know, again, it was one of those things where, you know, it, um, it was about letting go of, and one of the amazing things about Ron and Brian was it was about letting go of what it's going to be and, and how it's going to look. And it was just, we have to give this a shot and, you know, and having, and having the support of having the support of people to, to say, you know, we, we get what's going on, but, um, and, do what you need to do, but we support you. And I think that that, like that for me was, a just put a ton of wind in my sails and, and sometimes the best thing to do and the most supportive way you can be for, for somebody is to be productive, like to, to keep life kind of moving, um, uh, and keep it, 
keep it normal. And so, yeah, it was, it was definitely a year that I wouldn't want to go through again, but it was, um, especially coming into, into 2020 and to, to see what impact has become and to see what kind of all of that hardship, you know, um, has, has now start to, you know, produce, um, is fulfilling. And I, and I do think that the hard work pays off, you know, and, I have a theory that, you know, you only get out of life what you put in. And so if you, if you put in a hundred percent, um, of the, it's, it, it might take a lot longer than you think, but you're going to get a hundred, if not 120% back out. Yeah. That's great. You know, I, you've seen, I don't consult the notes at all, but I did have one question that you're kind of bringing it up. So it was after, you know, I wanted to ask you about the, the musical. And my question was, do you ever feel like you don't want to get out of bed and how do you will yourself up? Because there were times when I saw you in that stage where you just looked physically so tired and yet you just had the will to keep going. So before I ask you last couple of questions for the listeners, you know, you must have had times in that period where you were going through what you were going through with Brooke. You had Imagine Impact, you had the musical where you just felt like, oh, I just want to pull the sheets up. And and so if you had that, how how did you, what did you tell yourself to get through it? Of course you have that. You know, um, it's thing, things can be daunting, things can be overwhelming. Um, but you know, it kind of goes back to pitching goalie. You know, I was really into mixed martial arts before it was even called MMA and, you know, I'm, I will just keep coming, you know, like I get knocked down a lot um, f like physically, you know, like boxing, you know, uh, I, I try, I've trained with some of the best boxers and, and jujitsu people in the world. And, and I just, I don't know. I just, you know, I will die trying, you know, like there, there is, if, if there is no failure, if you refuse to give up. You can't win a war if the enemy doesn't surrender. And so as hard as it, as it may be, and, uh, uh, you know, and, uh, uh, as tough as times can be, and obviously you have friends to lean on and, and, and people to, you know, to call to help, you know, pick you up and, and to motivate you. Um, um, you know, I, th I think that if you just, you know, steal yourself and think, um, you know, I think about Simon and, you know, my father, you know, whose lives got cut, you know, got cut short and that's the worst that can happen. Right. And if that's the worst that can happen and yet we're all headed there, you know, unless things drastically change, we are all headed to that place. So make the best of it while you're here, work as hard as you can. And, you know, and, and in a way that actually takes the the pressure off because, you know, it's not a dress rehearsal. You can, you know, make your life what, what you want it. And, and, you know, the truth is, is that good stories don't 
not have adversity, right? Yeah. Like all, like everyone loves the underdog story. Ron and Brian, they tell underdog stories, you know, like all of their, all of their, you know, the best, their best movies, you know, are about people overcoming massive obstacles. And so, you know, I, I have been extremely lucky that I do not have nearly the, the number of obstacles that, that, people have in their lives, you know, and, and I get to work with so many people who I admire and help, help, you know, try to impact, you know, and give chances to, to people who, who haven't, you know, had chances that, that, that I've had, that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, my road has been easy. Like, and I think everybody has their own personal challenges. Um, but it, it's really about just locking yourself into your goal and, and then, waking up and saying, I get to drive onto the Paramount lot today. I get to, and like, and one of the things I, you know, someone told me was instead of I have to, is I get to, I get to talk to Brian Grazer and Ron Howard. I get to go to this meeting. I get to try to make this movie. I get to do all these things. And that is really lucky. You know, the, um, it took a lot of hard work to get there, but the fact is that if you ever are on a movie studio lot and you don't feel some kind of, you know, butterflies or some kind of magic, you should quit the business, you know, um, because it's, it is so hard and, and, and that means you're probably not in love with it anymore or maybe in love with it for the, for the, for the wrong reasons. And so I wake up every day, like no matter what, like, you know, the, 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 the book that, um, you know, was written the, the subtle art of not giving a fuck says that, you know, you got it right up there. <coughs> there you did a whole episode talking about Did that. you? Yeah. yeah. So it's, you know, and it's true. It's, you know, life is a series of problems that need to be solved and humans get, you know, enjoyment out of solving problems. And another book that I love is, you know, is uh, a better human. And they had this equation that, you know, talent, it's talent um, plus effort squared equals success. And so, you know, it's the effort that is exponential. And so you can have all the talent in the world, but if someone, if you don't work hard, someone, you know, is somewhat talented and works really hard, those are the people who are going to make it. And I, and you look at people, athletes, Michaela Schifrin, I, you know, my, my daughter's skiing and I'm watching a lot of her stuff and how hard they work or my friend Chase Utley or, you know, you know, Johnny Mosley. Like I've, I've been fortunate to be around some people who have achieved, you know, greatness in, in the things that they wanted to do. And the thing that always goes back to is how hard they work. And so, um, you know, for me, it's wake up, man. Yeah. This could be a rough day or there's all these things and saying, you know, I get to go out and do this. Yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. Couple of questions real quick. The word no means what to you? Opportunity, um, to learn, to understand a market and makes me want to understand where the no is coming from and then change that no into a yes. Yeah. Do you have a go-to mantra when everything goes sideways? I think 
Well, the go-to mantra is to call my wife, call my best friend. But no, it's um, it's uh, the, the 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 thing that sticks with me, and I forget who said it, but is that the universe is conspiring in your favor. You know, and and you might not be able to see around the curve or the corner, and it might look really dark. But if you just think to yourself. You know, this is all happening and unfolding in my favor and, you know, and it'll happen at the right time. More often than not, um, you know, things that, things that could have happened, um, that didn't happen, happened at a better time or things that I forced to happen shouldn't have happened. Um, and so I think that it's, it's just believing, you know, in, and being able to sort of read the signs of, of, of letting things unfold and as frustrating as it can be, just don't get negative, stay, always stay positive. So always stay optimistic. Um, and, you know, and, and crazy things can happen, you know, when you have, when you have that optimistic, um, outlook, it attracts, you know, um, positive energy. And, but when you're negative about it, you, you shut yourself off to opportunities yeah, that are there. Totally agree. If you could give your younger self advice, what age would you intervene and what would the advice be? Um... It would probably be when I, right after I had my, my daughter, so 10, 10 years ago. So I guess that'd be 33. And, you know, um, I'm really good, you know, again, it's one of those things that cuts both ways because I'm really good at putting a ton of pressure on myself. Um, and that can be good. But I think that if, if I could give myself advice, then it would be, you know, again, be positive believe that the universe is conspiring in your favor and, you know, and trust the process, you know, Nick Saban, you know, trust the process, put in the work and it will pay off and stop chasing an outcome. Stop chasing some thing, some project getting made, some job, some, some thing, and just every day focus on gathering more skills, being better at the end of that day than you were at the beginning of the day, learning more, reading more, understanding more. And if, if you make yourself more valuable every day, then at some point, someone is going to recognize that value. I mean, one of my favorite expressions is it takes two people to be talented. One person to have the talent and the other person to say, that person is talented. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> you know, and if you put the work in, yeah. eventually someone's going to say, that person's talented and, uh, and it'll happen. That's very cool. Tyler Mitchell. Thank you, brother. Thank, thank you. It's an honor to be here. Uh, I'm very grateful. Uh, so am I. Thanks, man. What we do here is go back, 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 back. Okay, top three takeaways. Again, right into the show, info at 10,000nose.com if you feel like I missed one, but here we go. Number one, when you're looking to create something, particularly something that is out of the box or not totally in line with the old guard, it's important to innovate, but also figure out how all parties can benefit. 
we're not trying to to replace anybody, you know, in in that kind of a way. Um, I think that like PayPal gave more business to MasterCard and Visa, even though they were hesitant um, and and cautious about PayPal initially. We we really do see this as as a win win. Also, just the fact that Tyler is not trying to reinvent the wheel. He's building on past successes in other industries. Number two, Tyler qualified this quote by saying it was cliche, but coming from him with his background of being pushed so hard by a tough father, it resonated more for me and the dime really dropped. And I think people need to hear it, even though they've heard it a million times, particularly from someone who's achieved so much in his life so far. You know, just let go of the outcome and enjoy the process. And and that that really is true. It's, you know, work extremely hard at what you're doing, but don't be focused on the byproduct, you know, of whether it's the, you know, the achievement, the success, the fame, the money, anything. Just focus on doing your job as well as you can do it, working as hard as you possibly can. And if things like that come from it. Those are bonuses and that's great, but that's not what you should be setting out to do. I chose that not only because it speaks about Tyler, but it also really ties back to everything he's doing with Imagine Impact in terms of giving the people that have that love of the process a real shot at being discovered. They've been creating, even when they live in the far corners of the earth, just because they love it. And then Imagine Impact swoops in and says, you know what? We see you. Let's let the rest of the world see you too. Number three, this one I wish I heard when I was younger. And I wish I could say that I was, you know, super smart and I capitalized on it. And um, I, I knew Netflix was going to be massive and I did know it was Netflix was going to be massive. But the the thing was at, at 21, 22 years old is you think that everyone else that's older and smarter than you knows that too. This is huge. If you're listening and you're young or inexperienced, what's the takeaway? It's that your youth and inexperience is your superpower. You're not bogged down by the weight of quarterly reports on logistics and all of that. I'm not saying it's easy because people aren't going to listen to you as easily because you don't have experience, but you need to listen to you. You need to believe that you can change the world because you can. I mean, someone's got to, so why not you? And I hate to add another one here, but it's just so appropriate for what we're going through right now faced with this pandemic, and it's what to focus on. And everybody's being quarantined, and it's, you know, what do you focus on? I read something recently. It said King Lear was uh, created by Shakespeare when he was, I think, in quarantine. And, and I'm just inspired that Tyler took a rough period in his life, and from it, Pushed the ball downfield with his musical, The Heart of Rock and Roll. It was definitely a a really tough time, you know. And so for me, you know, I was like, okay, well, what can I work on? Okay, recurring theme here. We can't control what happens to us, but we can control how we react to it. And also that it just came out of this period in his life where he was so close, but was just lost. It had all fallen apart. And from that place of devastation, he created this complete passion project. It's the classic 10,000 no story. I love it. 
he better get me a free ticket when it's on Broadway. That's all I'm saying. And with that, we've come to the end of another episode. And I've got to tell you, it was really hard to release this right now with everything going on in the world because everything seems to pale in comparison to the big story of coronavirus. But we've got to remind ourselves that story, storytelling, art, expression, love of the craft, love of connection, that's what's going to save us as a society after the medical professionals save us physically. So stick with it. Use this time when you're being forced to remain inside, away from others, to go inward. Pull out those stories, grapple with those difficult feelings and ponderings of your mortality. Be an artist. Even if your job title doesn't say that you're an artist, treat your job like an artist. Use it. Use that talent to help the world, to leave it better than you found it. Maybe you're that unknown talent out there waiting to be discovered, or maybe you're the Tyler in this scenario. You're, you're great with logistics and vision, and it's your calling to go help an artist get their art out there or hone it somehow. I hope this inspired you. I hope it gave you hope of beating the odds when right now we need hope and faith. Check out the links in our show notes for more information about Tyler, the Imagine Impact program, similar past guests. If you like what you heard, please take a screenshot of your phone, share it on social media, tell your friends about the show. You can follow me on social media to get announcements and promo videos of who's next, be added to our mailing list or contact us. There's also a link if you want to shop for cool 10,000 nose hats and t-shirts in our online store. All proceeds go toward keeping this podcast rolling. If you haven't yet, Please rate, review, and subscribe to 10,000 Knows on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen so you don't miss any episodes when they come out. If all stays on track, we'll be back next Friday with the Fonz, Henry Winkler, finally. Meantime, stay safe, hug your loved ones. Just make sure you're wearing rubber gloves and a mask when you do so. Just kidding. Hug them for real. All right, that's it. That's it.